Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode 18, Inferno, Canto diciottesimo, the second day after 6am. Hello! It's one of those days when fatigue hits horribly, and I was a bit unmotivated to do my daily chapter, but I told myself we are nearly at the end of the inferno, so, well, I then realised we are going to spend forever in the final two circles. But by that point it was too late. I may just pause and make a coffee before all the recording gets me yawning. But at present, this episode is brought to you by an ungodly amount of fizzy blues, although I had to pay for them rather than Haribo sponsoring me. The structure of the place is going to change again. We are in the Malebolge, which I've looked up and is not translated, and I'm not sure how you're supposed to pronounce it in English. The whole circle is dedicated to fraud, and there are 10 sub-circles, called the Bolgia, for every different type of fraud. The first one is inhabited by ruffians and seductors. And let me tell you that both Word and Google had tried to change it to seductress and I'm not having it. Also, in terms of structure, we have 17 chapters dedicated to the higher hell and 17 dedicated to the lower hell. So now we are sort of in the second half of the first book. Anyway, this canto also gives us a glimpse of the second ball job, that of flutterers. I'd be interested to see an updated version of what that circle would look like if Dante went on his journey now. Has anyone written a sequel? If not, someone should. The first group is in this circle rather than the second one because they use deception to use to take advantage of women, while the second one is there because they use false compliments to gain an advantage on someone else. The two punishments are interesting. The ruffians and seductors are running around naked while being flogged by demons, while the adulators are sat in dung hitting themselves. I don't know if the English texts come across the same way, but the language in the original is harsh in many ways. The sound of the words, as well as the image they convey, it's all quite crude. You can see and even smell it. It's all very grotesque. And even intended as comical at times. It makes a weird contrast with some of the other images brought up, like at the beginning in verses 27 to 30, when it talks about pilgrimages to Rome. Now, of course, we think of St. Peter's as a huge masterpiece of Renaissance architecture, but that was not the site that Dante had in mind. The structure was the same as a standard basilica, while it was built outside the city on the site of Nero's Circus. If you have visited the sites of classical Rome, you may have visited the excavation of the Basilica Ulpia in Trajan's Forum, similar to the description of the Temple of Solomon in the Old Testament, which used to be the model for church buildings for most of church history. There is a tradition that says that the columns came from the temple, but obviously that was historically impossible even for Constantine, and it's just columns coming from the Eastern Empire. The Baldacchino in the new basilica is based on the design of the columns of the old one. 
The first time I visited Rome was before my reversion and I still stayed inside St. Peter's longer than the rest of my class because I was just obsessed with that baldacchino. But anyway, I digress. There are some images that reconstruct the old basilica as it would have looked like at the time and it's really worth looking to get a sense of how different Dante's world was from our own. I could do a whole episode on that building and the meaning of spaces in the Middle Ages, but today we're here to talk about dead people instead. Four people are named in this canto, two contemporaries and two people from classical antiquity. None of them introduces themselves, and in the case of the latter even speaks. Dante will recognise his contemporaries, who will try to deny their identity, while Virgil will introduce the other two. Interestingly, one of the two characters we are about to see, Venedico Caccia Nemico, was not actually dead in the year 1300. Venedico dell'Orso, whose nickname translates as Chase Away the Enemy, was a major personality among the Guelphs in Bologna. He was exiled twice and eventually was instrumental in the victory over the Ghibellines. He was also very proeste of Ferrara and we find him here under the accusation of getting his sister to be a mistress to the Marquess, which is an allusion to other bits of the second or acts of the eighth of Este. It's a well-known story according to Dante, but no records of the situation exist for us to confirm its veracity. The sister also has an amazingly weird name, Ghisolabella. But the names are not all that I've loved in this canto. The line about how the greedy Bolognese are more numerous in the Bolgia than in the world above is Chumas thus. And to make it worse, at the time of writing, Dante was in exile less than 100 kilometers away. You've got to give it to him, he is brave. After the devil comes to take Venedico away, Dante and Virgil will move to a different area, where they will see Jason from Greek mythology, who had to use deception a fair few times in his adventures. After they reach the next Bolgia, I see a man so covered in excrements that you can't tell if he's a cleric or a layperson because you can't see his tonsure or lack of thereof. The man is Alessio Interminale da Lucca, who Dante has seen with dry hair before. He was a white Guelph and he is guilty of incessant flattery. According to himself, we don't actually approve of that. There must be something in the name though, as my husband just accused me of being a flatterer too. The classical counterpart is the second woman we see, unless I forgot someone. She's Thais, for once an actual real person. She was a mistress of Alexander the Great and later Ptolemy I, whom she then married. Some historians suggest she was Ptolemy's mistress all along. Either way, she is behind the burning of Persepolis. I'm a bit embarrassed at the implication of the final few verses, which really sound like a sexual innuendo, and that would explain a lot about why she ended up there. Although I'm sure we can take the innocent view that she faked stronger feelings than she had. I have my doubts that's what Dante meant though, given the very sexual nature of the word he uses to describe her. Naughty Dante! Whatever your view on this, I'll see you tomorrow.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is fun for 10 or adds if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore Sheik or on my blog www.sheikandcatholic.com.